439, Chapter 53 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 851. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 439, Mellow Drama. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. I hope you are well. I hope your January is going better than some of the Januaries that I've been seeing on television. Well, on, on the Weather Channel, anyway. Wow. Ice storms all over the place. As you know, as things heat up, things become more unstable, not unlike a pot of boiling water. And uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to be seeing more weird winters like this, where we're quite balmy here in Pennsylvania, and other people are living under thick sheets of ice. So I hope you are not suffering where you are. If you are, however, suffering right now, you can alleviate some of the pain with today's chapter from The Count of Monte Cristo. However, before we get to that, our crafty chat this week did include a special guest, Shannon Oki from Cooperative Press, and she is doing something really quite interesting over at patreon.com and being very transparent with the data she's collecting. So I'm going to let her talk to you about this for a bit. And there's Ms. Oki. <laughs> Hello, ladies. Hello, lady. You are doing something new and I think quite brave. And Erica wanted you to come on and tell us about it so we can ask you questions. Yes. So the basic premise, and today is a pattern release day, so on top of everything else. So we're doing a Patreon this year and releasing a pattern every single week through patreon.com slash knitgirl. And it will be a brand new pattern every week designed, you know, by me, knit by sample knitters. This is a crucial component to all of this. As you know, I'm moving studios right now. And earlier in the year when I was sort of looking around the space, I said, you know, look at all these tubs of yarn. You need to go to work. (laughs) Um, Looked at all the yarn, started to catalog all of the yarn, (laughs) which all by itself was, you can imagine. And sat down and said, there's enough yarn, enough project quantities of yarn here to be able to do a single pattern every single week without even asking for yarn support. That's kind of how crazy it is over here. So I rounded up a sample knitter gang. Uh, The fair fiber wage discussion that started, you know, at the end of last year, where teachers and other people in the yarn industry were talking about how for lack of a better term, you know, the compensation in this industry has never been great. It's not a high paying industry and things seem to be, you know, getting worse. So what do you do? What do you do about that? And there's only so many things you can do, you know, because you've published through Cooperative Press that, you know, we try to make things as fair as we can in terms of compensation, but there's a limit to what we can do 
as things like that go on. So looking at teaching salaries in the industry, looking at all the sort of components that go into making this industry what it is, everything from sample knitters on up, how can we make the compensation more fair for sample knitters? That was a chunk that I could sort of take on and turn to my advantage in this project where we're trying to get, you know, 52 plus pieces knit up in, you know, the space of a year. We're going to be looking at a lot of things. This program is, for lack of a better word, uh, it's a giant data project. What can we do to, you know, examine sort of all of the data that we have accumulated when we're selling patterns? You know, does a knit along help drive sales? Does, what helps designers sell more patterns? And is it a consistency factor? You know, Ravelry put out those, the numbers, I believe in August, of how active designers are uh, on Ravelry. You know, at any given time, there are this many active designers and there are this many inactive designers. Is it a frequency thing? Is it a just constantly being in the eye of everyone thing? Well, if we're releasing a pattern a week, we've already got that variable locked in. Right. Number one. Number two, uh, you know, what sort of data can we mine from this? Is, uh, you know, like I said, is a knit-along going to drive sales? Is the type of pattern it is going to drive sales? Well, the sort of radical transparency thing here is for the patrons who are supporting us in the project, they're going to get all these numbers. How many patterns actually got sold? What did we pay the knitter? What did we pay the photographer? What did we pay? All of these people who go into producing a pattern that are sort of invisible to the naked eye right now. How do those people get compensated and how much? And as you know, sometimes you'll spend X amount releasing a pattern and then it sells two copies. Well, that's a factor. And is that something that drives people to drop out of the industry? What, what are all of the you know, data portions that we can gather up over the course of a year, analyze, and then present back to people in an actual usable form? So that's the project in a nutshell. And yeah, it just started as studio cleaning and got way bigger. So <laughs> That's so funny that it started there. It's kind of wild because if you think about it, you know, from, you know, producing the Defarge books, just wrangling X number of designers together into one project is one big undertaking. And, you know, we're in the process of working on Sherlock together right now. Yes, Erica, we're really still working on Sherlock. But what, you know... What other things can we look at? What other things can we analyze? I have a lot of people who are real data nerds stepping up to say, oh, oh, this is my jam. What can I do? How can I help? I, you know, have this experience. How can we use it? Like, that's amazing to me. So, yeah, it's kind of going to be a super cool project by the time it's done. Right now, because, you know, this is only the second week we're releasing a pattern. There's not a lot of data to play with yet. But we're still actively soliciting, what do you want to know? You know, can we go out and interview a specific designer about something that you want to know about? Is there someone like, for example, Nora Gone, right? Nora, you know, she's a design director for a yarn company. Nora can't possibly be knitting all of her own samples. So, you know, who's doing the sample knitting for you? How does that production side look as a yarn company compared to, say, an independent? How do things look like from different areas of the industry? If you're the design director at a yarn company, how does this look compared to what an independent designer's thing looks like? I think it's such an interesting idea to have part of the process of what you're doing be peeling back the the veil. This transparency thing that you're doing, I think it's remarkable because one of the things about Patreon that I like is that there's a conversation that happens. So people can write Mm -hmm. messages to you within the Patreon framework and not just respond to the things that you post, the the kind of, yeah, I like learning about this. We need to know more about that. 
but they can respond to the numbers in meaningful and useful ways for well for for a while when we were kicking around you know the ideas of how to structure this you know nobody needs 52 new patterns you know we've all got a a knitting list a mile long already but what I think the, the thing that people want to, you know, pay for or want to know about is what I'm calling the nosiness factor, you know, <laughs> what, exactly. you know, as well as I do, you know, things like that. People want to know the behind the scenes things. They want to know, you know, how these things are put together and structured, how these things work. And if that's the case, then maybe that's what they're paying for and not necessarily, you know, yeah, they're getting a great pattern. Excellent. But you know, what else are they paying for? Well, in my opinion, they're paying for that nosiness factor. What, what things can we, you know, find out for them that they are going to be interested in? So there's more about that over on the Crafty Chat live stream for episode 439. And in fact, the link in the show notes will take you directly to the section where Shannon popped up. So you can just watch that if that's what you'd like to see, because she did go into more detail about it. There's a lot going on in the crafty book publishing designer world right now that you may or may not hear rumblings of. I know Krista Nicholas, who's a, a wonderful designer and dyer, and, and she's got really cool stuff. She's on a hiatus, for lack of a better word, from designing for a little while because she is experiencing some of the same things that we and Cooperative Press have been experiencing as well. So it's an interesting time to be working in this field. And I will link to Kristen Nicholas's blog post about all of this as well. In my own weird little world in this corner of Pennsylvania, I have some news that will make longtime listeners, well, you'll probably just need to sit down for a little bit and rest your forehead. Because this past weekend when we went and saw the movie Hidden Figures, which I highly recommend, holy smoke, was it great? Ah, fantastic. Before we saw the movie... My son drove around the parking lot with me in the car for the first time because he has his learner's permit. Yes, that is correct. For those of you who have stuck with Craftlet for all these years, you may recall that when this podcast started, he was six. And it is one thing to say those numbers and say, oh, yeah, well, of course, it's been 10, almost 11 years. So, of course, he would have grown up in that time. It's another thing entirely to have been getting really marvelous advice from you about his challenges with learning how to read and our challenges with homeschooling, and now to have a almost six-foot-tall 16-year-old driving the car with me in the passenger seat. It is head-spinning, and it's head-spinningly fast. It, It feels like yesterday. I sound like a cliché. But I know you know what I mean, and I also know that those of you who have come to Craftlet more recently but have gone back and listened to the old episodes all the way up till now, your head is probably spinning just as much as everyone else's because you've compressed 10 years of audio into a shorter period of time. And that's, that's a little weird. So I'm still in shock. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about any of this. But I thought I should let you know. And the corollary to that shock, of course, is that my younger son is about to turn 13. So there's a bar mitzvah pending. More on that as we get a grip. And luckily, this actually does kind of tie into our chapter today because our chapter is one of melodrama. 
but not melodrama of the, I can't pay the rent. You must pay the rent. I'll pay the rent. Not that kind. It's more melodrama in that the setting is one that is utilizing melodrama. But remember, this is early, earlier in the 1800s. So the kind of melodrama that we're looking at isn't the penny dreadful type of melodrama. It's still got a little bit more substance to it. Probably gothic, probably capital R romantic, not so much cheeseball melodrama that you get later. So let's hop to it. Chapter 53 of The Count of Monte Cristo. This chapter, following up on toxicology, which remains one of my favorite chapters, did it sit with you too? Did you think back to it from time to time during the week? I sure did. I just thought the writing in that one was so unique for the time period. Not just because of the female character that Dumas created, and there's another female character coming up in today's chapter that will blow your socks off as well, but because he allowed her to both say and to not say things. And sometimes the things that he doesn't have them say are the important ones. And there's a few more instances of that in today's chapter as well. As far as things that you should know before jumping into it, one of them is that we are going back to the opera. This time it's the Paris Opera. And Dumas, not surprisingly, is giving his readers an opportunity to perhaps have an experience that they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford or to have. Getting to the opera was a thing, and it was a rich people thing, and a lot of Dumas' readers were not going to be those people. So he chose an interesting opera to share in this chapter. It is called Robert le Diable, Robert the Devil. This actually goes back to an older story. It's kind of riffing on a knight of old kind of vaguely Tristan and Isolde kind of story with, you know, lots of intrigue and stuff. And for those of you who listened to Canterbury Tales over on the premium feed when we did it, The Knight's Tale, do you remember? It was the love story, the two guys, the one girl, fairly cheeseball of itself. I picked up some resonance of The Knight's Tale in this description of the, the opera as well. I am linking out to a description if you care to find out more. Robert Le Diable was evidently connected to William the Conqueror's father at one point. It was a big lot of research to do. And I got to a point where I realized that ultimately it probably didn't matter so much that that was the opera. What did matter, I think, is that it's a real opera. It was really still very new when this book was being written. It was groundbreaking it had special effects and it had music and it had all sorts of cool things happening on stage and it had drama to capital. Wow, that was drama. And it also had a particular singer, Nicholas Levasseur. I've included in the show notes an embedded photograph of this actor playing his role, Bertrand, in this opera. He's the one on the far left. And if you look at the picture, well, you might arrive at the same conclusion that I arrived at, which is, if I was going to go see this opera, I'd want to make sure I saw it with him and not the understudy. Because the guy looks interesting. And I'm kind of curious to find out uh, how he does in a part like this. He looks like he would be very intriguing. So that's part of, I think, why Dumas included this opera. 
I also think he included this opera because it's big. It was loud. There's a love story and a sub love story. But it's also a compelling drama of behaving badly. And some people get punished and some people don't. And that's all fine. But it's also because it is a big, dramatic opera. It's also really hard to talk over most of the time, unless there's lovey things happening on stage. To summarize the act structure in this particular opera, it's five-act opera. You know, usually when you do a three-act structure, the first act is the exposition, the second act is all of the challenges and drama and the tangling of the stories, and then the third act is the untangling, the denouement. Sometimes the climax happens at the end of the second act, sometimes at the beginning or near the beginning of the third act. But ultimately, it comes down to that Fitzgerald quote that Americans don't like second acts. And that what he meant in a three-act structure was we like getting to know the people. We like watching them fall in love. And we like watching them live happily ever after. We like all the problems being fixed. But we don't really like the messy middle quite so much. That idea resonates with one line in this entire chapter. And the line comes close to the end. In order for you to put that line into perspective, you need to know what's going on in the acts. So, in brief, Act 1 gives us the lay of the land. We get our main characters and our secondary characters in. We are introduced to all of the many characters in the show, and we start to get the first layers of conflict laid out for us. We find out that Bertrand is potentially an Iago character, and that Robert, of the play's name, is in love with the princess, and all sorts of complications ensue. Act two, Robert and Isabella are separated and brought back together again, so this is Robert and the princess, and all of this seems to have something to do with Bertrand. And Alice, who is the love interest for Robert's attendant, is the one who seems to be aware of the most machinations behind the scene. And so she turns out to be interesting in Act 3. Still, by the end, it is not looking so good for Isabella and Robert. Isabella is very sad, but not one to despair. She instead sings a song in praise of chivalry. Act 3, Bertram, the mysterious Bertram, does his best Iago impersonation and messes with absolutely everyone's life to the point where he takes the attendant and sends him off to try and get him to marry somebody else, abandoning Alice. Remember the one from Act 2 who seemed to know what was going on. He then goes into a cave to commune with the spirits of hell, right? So then Alice shows up. She hears this strange chant after she's done singing. She hears this strange chanting going on, and it turns out that Bertram is going to have to get Robert to sign his soul over to the devil, or Bertram, the father, will lose his son, Robert, forever. That didn't make a lot of sense to me, but there it is. At this point, Bertram realizes that Alice has heard everything. He threatens her and makes her promise not to say anything. Robert shows up. Alice cannot tell him what's going on. Bertram convinces him to use witchcraft in order to get Isabella back, and against his better judgment, Robert complies. That's the end of Act 3. Act 4, Isabel is preparing to marry this other prince because Robert keeps taking off and Alice runs in and spills the beans about Robert. 
not necessarily about Bertram, but definitely about Robert. She's interrupted when this prince's guys show up with all the wedding presents. And at the same time, Robert arrives and using the power of witchcraft, he freezes everyone except for Isabel and himself. Which, when you think of it, that had to look pretty cool on stage back then because they didn't have any kind of external generation of that special effect. It would just be a very loud and large company of people suddenly freezing. And truly, at that point, your attention is going to be riveted on the two people who can move. And that that would look really cool. In doing this, Robert is a little freaked out by his own power. He's uh, not so sure it was such a great idea and confesses to Isabel that witchcraft is being used on his behalf. He begs her not to toss him out. She says she loves him and implores him to repent. He breaks the branch in half. The spell is broken and he's taken into custody. Act five. You get the requisite monks coming in to extol the power of the church. (laughs) Bertram came in and rescued Robert from the guards, and they show up to prevent the marriage of Isabel to this other prince. Bertram tries to get Robert to sign a document in which he agrees to serve Bertram for all eternity. He reveals to Robert that he's the dad, and Robert decides to sign it because it's his dad. But before they do, Alice shows up. The prince has been stopped from marrying Isabel. Alice prays for divine help. And there's wills and letters from mothers who've passed away. And it all takes a long time. And then midnight strikes. And Bertram is out of time and taken back to hell. Robert has Isabel. Everybody's happy. The end. So Act 3 is going to be the most interesting act. Because you have Bertram going to the cave and chanting with devils. And Alice overhearing it and then getting threatened. And that is the third act. Fourth act is we start to get ready for a wedding and Robert comes in, freezes everyone, explains to Isabel how much he loves her and confesses that he's probably not doing the right thing using the witchcraft stuff. Confesses to not doing the right thing. I think that's important. And then he starts to pay for that because he's taken into custody at the end of the act. Act four of Ken is all of the knots that were created in acts one through four are untied and everything is returned to its correct position. Robert, in love with Isabel, getting married, and Bertram, the bad guy, has gone to hell. Everybody winds up in their proper place. When you get to the end of the chapter, that will all mean something to you. I promise there's a payoff for me having gone through all of this. And in fact, I have a special guest, another special guest, our second special guest, who will weigh in on this question after you've listened to the chapter. So... Stay tuned for that. There are references to a couple of other historical figures in this chapter. The one that I am going to mention now, and then we will dive right into the book, is Diogenes. Diogenes is the Greek philosopher who began the movement, the school of thought that was called cynicism. His history is kind of hilarious and I'm going to link to it for you because just his biography, it's kind of hard to believe. He was certainly a character, but his branch of philosophy eventually morphed when it came into contact with other philosophers into Stoicism. So from cynicism to Stoicism, 
Now, just like with last week's chapter, listen very closely to how especially women are described in this chapter. You're going to see the Countess G once again. She was at the opera in Rome, and she was the one who thought that the Count was a vampire. So you'll hear from her again. She's always fun. And we know her, so you don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to how she's being described. New women, though, or women with whom you are mostly unfamiliar, do pay attention to how they're characterized, both by Dumas' third-person narration description, but also by how other people seem to be characterizing them. There's some interesting stuff going on, and I will check in with you after we listen to the chapter and see if you caught on to what Dumas is setting up here. All right, chapter 53, Count of Monte Cristo. So much fun. Here we go. Chapter 53, Robert le Diable. The pretext of an opera engagement was so much the more feasible as there chanced to be on that very night a more than ordinary attraction at the Académie Royale. Levasseur, who had been suffering under severe illness, made his reappearance in the character of Bertrand, and, as usual, the announcement of the most admired production of the favourite composer of the day had attracted a brilliant and fashionable audience. Morcerf, like most other young men of rank and fortune, had his orchestra stall, with the certainty of always finding a seat in at least a dozen of the principal boxes occupied by persons of his acquaintance, he had, moreover, his right of entry into the omnibus box. Chateau Renault rented a stall beside his own, while Beauchamp, as a journalist, had unlimited range all over the theatre. It happened that, on this particular night, the minister's box was placed at the disposal of Lucien de Bray, who offered it to the Comte de Morcerf, who again, upon his mother's rejection of it, sent it to Donglard, with an intimation that he should probably do himself the honour of joining the baroness and her daughter during the evening, in the event of their accepting the box in question. The ladies received the offer with too much pleasure to dream of a refusal. To no class of persons is the presentation of a gratuitous opera box more acceptable than to the wealthy millionaire who still hugs economy while boasting of carrying a king's ransom in his waistcoat pocket. Donglard had, however, protested against showing himself in a ministerial box, declaring that his political principles and his parliamentary position as member of the opposition party would not permit him so to commit himself. The baroness had, therefore, dispatched a note to Lucien de Bray, bidding him call for them, it being wholly impossible for her to go alone with Eugenie to the opera. There is no gainsaying the fact that a very unfavourable construction would have been put upon the circumstance if the two women had gone without escort, while the addition of a third, in the person of her mother's admitted lover, enabled Mademoiselle Donglard to defy malice and ill-nature. One must take the world as one finds it. The curtain rose, as usual, to an almost empty house, it being one of the absurdities of Parisian fashion, never to appear at the opera until after the beginning of the performance, so that the first act is generally played without the slightest attention being paid to it, that part of the audience already assembled being too much occupied in observing the fresh arrivals, while nothing is heard but the noise of opening and shutting doors and the buzz of conversation. 
Charlie, said Albert, as the door of a box on the first circle opened, that must be the Countess G. And who is the Countess G? inquired Chateau Renaud. What a question! Now do you know, Baronne, I have a great mind to pick up quarrel with you for asking it. As if all the world did not know who the Countess G was. Ah, to be sure, replied Chateau Renaud. The lovely Venetian, is it not? Herself. At this moment the Countess perceived Albert, and returned his salutation with a smile. You know her, it seems, said Chateau Renaud. France, introduce me to her at Rome, replied Albert. Well, then, will you do as much for me in Paris as France did for you in Rome? With pleasure. There was a cry of, Shut up! from the audience. This manifestation on the part of the spectators of their wish to be allowed to hear the music produced not the slightest effect on the two young men, who continued their conversation. "'The Countess was present at the races in Champ de Mars,' said Chateau Renaud. "'Today?' "'Yes.' "'Bless me, I quite forgot the races. Did you bet?' "'Oh, Milia, poultry fifty louis.' "'And who was the winner?' "'Nautilus. I staked on him.' "'But there were three races, were there not?' "'Yes, there was the prize given by the jockey club. "'A gold cup, you know, and a very singular circumstance occurred about that race.' "'What was it?' "'Oh, shut up,' again interposed some of the audience. "'Why, it was a one by a horse and a rider, utterly unknown on the course.' "'Is that possible?' "'True as day. The fact was, nobody had observed a horse entered by the name of Vampa.' or that of a jockey-styled Job, when at the last moment a splendid roan, mounted by a jockey about as big as your fist, presented themselves at the starting post. They were obliged to stuff at least twenty pounds weight of shot in the small rider's pockets to make him wait. But with all that he had stripped Ariel and Barbar, against whom he ran, by at least three whole lengths. And was it not found out at last? to whom the horse and jockey belonged? No. You say that the horse was entered under the name of Vampa. Exactly. That was the title. Then, answered Albert, I am better informed than you are, and know who the owner of that horse was. Shut up there! cried the pit in the chorus, and this time the tone and manner in which the command was given betokened such growing hostility that the two young men perceived, for the first time, that the mandate was addressed to them. Leisurely turning round, they calmly scrutinized the various countenances around them as though demanding some one person who would take upon himself the responsibility of what they deemed excessive impertinence. But as no one responded to the challenge, the friends turned again to the front of the theatre, and affected to busy themselves with the stage. At this moment the door of the minister's box opened, and Madame Danglars, accompanied by her daughter, entered, escorted by Lucien de Bray, who assiduously conducted them to their seats. "'Ha, ha!' said Chateau Renaud. "'Here comes some friend of yours, Viscount. What are you looking at there? Don't you see they are trying to catch your eye?' Albert turned around just in time to receive a gracious wave of the fan from the baroness. As for Mademoiselle Eugenie, she scarcely vouchsafed to waste the glances of her large black eyes even upon the business of the stage. 
"'I tell you what, my dear fellow,' said Chateau Renaud, "'I cannot imagine what objection you can possibly have to Mademoiselle Danglars. "'That is, setting aside her want of ancestry and somewhat inferior rank, "'which, by the way, I don't think you care very much about. "'Now, barring all that, I mean to say she is a deuced fine girl.' "'Handsome, certainly,' replied Albert. "'but not to my taste, which, I confess, "'inclines to something softer, gentler, and more feminine.' "'Ah, well!' exclaimed Chateau Renaud, "'who, because he had seen his thirtieth summer, "'fancied himself duly warranted in assuming a sort of paternal air "'with his more youthful friend. "'You young people are never satisfied. "'Why, what would you have more? "'Your parents have chosen you a bride built on the model of Diana, the huntress,' "'And yet you are not content.' "'No, for that very resemblance affrights me. "'I should have liked something more in the manner of the Venus of Milo or Capua. "'But this chase-loving Diana, continually surrounded by her nymphs, "'gives me a sort of alarm, lest she should some day bring on me the fate of Actaeon.' And, indeed, it required but one glance at Mademoiselle Danglars to comprehend the justness of Morcerf's remark. She was beautiful, but her beauty was of too marked and decided a character to please a fastidious taste. Her hair was raven-black, but its natural waves seemed somewhat rebellious. Her eyes, of the same colour as her hair, were surmounted by well-arched brows, whose great defect, however, "'consisted in an almost habitual frown, "'while her whole physiognomy wore that expression of firmness and decision "'so little in accordance with the gentler attributes of her sex. "'Her nose was precisely what a sculptor would have chosen for a chiselled Juno. "'Her mouth, which might have been found fault with as too large, "'displayed teeth of pearly whiteness, "'rendered still more conspicuous by the brilliant carmine of her lips.' "'contrasting vividly with her naturally pale complexion. "'But that which completed the almost masculine look "'Morcerf found so little to his taste "'was a dark mole of much larger dimensions "'than those freaks of nature generally are, "'placed just at the corner of her mouth, "'and the effect tended to increase the expression of self-dependence "'that characterised her countenance.' The rest of Mademoiselle Eugenie's person was in perfect keeping with the head just described. She, indeed, reminded one of Diana, as Chateau Renaud observed, but her bearing was more haughty and resolute. As regarded her attainments, the only fault to be found with them was the same that a fastidious connoisseur might have found with her beauty, that they were somewhat too erudite and masculine for so young a person. She was a perfect linguist, a first-rate artist, wrote poetry, and composed music. To the study of the latter she professed to be entirely devoted, following it with an indefatigable perseverance, assisted by a schoolfellow, a young woman without fortune, whose talent promised to develop into remarkable powers as a singer. It was rumoured that she was an object of almost paternal interest to one of the principal composers of the day, who excited her to spare no pains in the cultivation of her voice, which might hereafter prove a source of wealth and independence. But this counsel effectually decided Mademoiselle Danglars never to commit herself by being seen in public with one destined for a theatrical life, and acting upon this principle, 
the banker's daughter though perfectly willing to allow mademoiselle louis d'armilly that was the name of the young virtuosa to practice with her through the day took especial care not to be seen in her company still though not actually received at the hotel d'anglars in the light of an acknowledged friend louise was treated with far more kindness and consideration than is usually bestowed on a governess the curtain fell almost immediately after the entrance of madame d'anglars into her box the band quitted the orchestra for the accustomed half-hour's interval allowed between the acts and the audience were left at liberty to promenade the salon or lobbies or to pay and receive visits in their respective boxes morcerf and chateau renaud were amongst the first to avail themselves of this permission for an instant the idea struck madame d'anglars that this eagerness on the part of the young viscount arose from his impatience to join her party and she whispered her expectations to her daughter that albert was hurrying to pay his respects to them mademoiselle eugenie however merely returned a dissenting movement of the head while with a cold smile she directed the attention of her mother to an opposite box on the first circle in which sat the countess g and where morcerf had just made his appearance so we meet again my travelling friend do we cried the countess extending her hand to him with all the warmth and cordiality of an old acquaintance it was really very good of you to recognize me so quickly and still more so to bestow your first visit on me be assured replied albert that if i had been aware of your arrival in paris and had known your address i should have paid my respects to you before this allow me to introduce my friend baron de chateau renaud one of the few true gentlemen now to be found in france and from whom i have just learned that you were a spectator of the races in the champ de mars yesterday chateau renaud bowed to the countess so you were at the races baron inquired the countess eagerly yes madame well then pursued madame g with considerable animation you can probably tell me who won the jockey club stakes i am sorry to say i cannot replied the baron and i was just asking the same question of albert are you very anxious to know countess asked albert to know what the name of the owner of the winning horse excessively only imagine but do tell me viscount whether you really are acquainted with it or no i beg your pardon madame but you were about to relate some story were you not you said only imagine and then paused pray continue well then listen you must know i felt so interested in the splendid roan horse with his elegant little rider so tastefully dressed in a pink satin jacket and cap that i could not help praying for their success with as much earnestness as though the half of my fortune were at stake and when i saw them outstrip all the others and come to the winning post in such gallant style i actually clapped my hands with joy imagine my surprise when upon returning home the first object i met on the staircase was the identical jockey in the pink jacket i concluded that by some singular chance 
the owner of the winning horse must live in the same hotel as myself but as i entered my apartments i beheld the very gold cup awarded as a prize to the unknown horse and rider inside the cup was a small piece of paper on which were written these words from lord ruthven to countess g precisely i was sure of it said morcerf sure of what that the owner of the horse was lord ruthven himself what lord ruthven do you mean why our lord ruthven the vampire of the sal argentino is it possible exclaimed the countess is he here in paris to be sure why not and you visit him meet him at your own house and elsewhere i assure you he is most intimate friend and monsieur de chateau renaud has also the honour of his acquaintance but why are you so sure of his being the winner of the jockey club prize was not the winning horse entered by the name of vampa what of that why do you not recollect the name of the celebrated bandit by whom i was made a prisoner oh yes and from whose hands the count extricated me in a so wonderful a manner to be sure i remember it all now he called himself vampa you see it's evident where the count got the name but what could have been his motive for sending the cup to me in the first place because i had spoken much of you to him as you may believe and in the second because he delighted to see a countrywoman take so lively an interest in his success i trust and hope you never repeated to the count all the foolish remarks we used to make about him i should not like to affirm upon oath that i have not besides he is presenting you the cup under the name of lord ruthven oh but that is dreadful why the man must owe me a fearful grudge does this action appear like that of an enemy no certainly not well then and so he is in paris yes and what effect does he produce why said albert he was talked about for a week then the coronation of the queen of england took place followed by the theft of mademoiselle mars's diamonds and so people talked of something else my good fellow said rachato renaud the count is your friend and you treat him accordingly do not believe what albert is telling you countess so far from the sensation excited in the parisian circles by the appearance of the count of monte cristo having abated i take upon myself to declare that it is as strong as ever his first astounding act upon coming amongst us was to present a pair of horses worth thirty-two thousand francs to madame d'anglars his second the almost miraculous preservation of madame de villefort's life now it seems that he has carried off the prize awarded by the jockey club i therefore maintain in spite of morcerf that not only is the count the object of interest at this present moment but also that he will continue to be so for a month longer if he pleases to exhibit an eccentricity of conduct which after all may be his ordinary mode of existence
"'Perhaps you are right,' said Morcerf. "'Meanwhile, who is in the Russian ambassador's box?' "'Which box do you mean?' asked the countess. "'The one between the pillars on the first tier. "'It seems to have been fitted up entirely afresh.' "'Did you observe anyone during the first act?' asked Chateau Renaud. "'Where?' "'In that box.' "'No,' replied the countess. "'It was certainly empty during the first act.' Then, resuming the subject of their previous conversation, she said, "'And so you really believe it was your mysterious Count of Monte Cristo that gained the prize?' "'I am sure of it.' "'And who afterwards sent the cup to me?' "'Undoubtedly.' "'But I don't know him,' said the countess. "'I have a great mind to return it.' "'Do no such thing, I beg of you. "'He would only send you another, "'formed of a magnificent sapphire, "'or hollowed out of a gigantic ruby. "'It is his way, "'and you must take him as you find him.' "'At this moment the bell rang to announce the drawing up of the curtain for the second act. Albert rose to return to his place. "'Shall I see you again?' asked the countess. "'At the end of the next act, with your permission, I will come and inquire whether there is anything I can do for you in Paris.' "'Pray, take notice,' said the countess, "'that my present residence is twenty-two rue de Vivoli, and that I am at home to my friends every Saturday evening. So now, you are both forewarned. The young men bowed and quitted the box. Upon reaching their stalls, they found the whole of the audience in the parterre standing up and directing their gaze toward the box formerly possessed by the Russian ambassador. A man of from thirty-five to forty years of age, dressed in deep black, had just entered accompanied by a young woman dressed after the eastern style. The lady was surpassingly beautiful, while the rich magnificence of her attire drew all eyes upon her. Hello, said Albert. "'It is Monte Cristo and his Greek.' The strangers were, indeed, no other than the Count and Haiti. In a few moments the young girl had attracted the attention of the whole house— and even the occupants of the boxes leaned forward to scrutinize her magnificent diamonds. The second act passed away during one continued buzz of voices, one deep whisper intimating that some great and universally interesting event had occurred. All eyes, all thoughts, were occupied with the young and beautiful woman, whose gorgeous apparel and splendid jewels made a most extraordinary spectacle. Upon this occasion an unmistakable sign from Madame Donglars intimated her desire to see Albert in her box directly the curtain fell on the second act, and neither the politeness nor good taste of Morcerf would permit his neglecting an invitation so unequivocally given. At the close of the act he therefore went to the baroness. Having bowed to the two ladies, he extended his hand to Dubray. By the baroness he was most graciously welcomed, while Eugenie received him with her accustomed coldness. "'My dear fellow,' said Debray, "'you have come in the nick of time. There is Madame overwhelming me with questions respecting the Count. She insists upon it that I can tell her his birth, education, and parentage, 
where he came from and whither he is going. Being no disciple of Cagliostro, I was wholly unable to do this. So, by way of getting out of the scrape, I said, Ask Morcerf. He has got the whole history of this beloved Monte Cristo at his fingers. Whereupon the baroness signified a desire to see you. Is it not almost incredible, said Madame Danglars, that a person having at least half a million of secret service money at his command should possess so little information? Let me assure you, madame, said Lucien, that had I really the sum you mention at my disposal, I would employ it more profitably than in troubling myself to obtain particular respecting the Count of Monte Cristo, whose only merit in my eyes consists in his being twice as rich as a nabob. However, I have turned the business over to Morcerf, so pray settle it with him, as may be most agreeable to you, for my own part. I care nothing about the Count or his mysterious doings. I am very sure no nabob would have sent me a pair of horses worth thirty-two thousand francs, wearing on their heads four diamonds valued at five thousand francs each. He seems to have a mania for diamonds, said Morcerf, smiling, and I verily believe that, like Potemkin, he keeps his pockets filled for the sake of strewing them along the road, as Tom Thumb did his flintstones. "'Perhaps he has discovered some mine,' said Madame Danglars. "'I suppose you know he has an order for unlimited credit on the Baron's banking establishment.' "'I was not aware of it,' replied Albert. "'But I can readily believe it.' "'And further, that he stated to Monsieur Danglars his intention of only staying a year in Paris.' during which time he proposed to spend six million. He must be the Shah of Persia, travelling incog. Have you noticed the remarkable beauty of the young woman, Monsieur Lucien? inquired Eugénie. I really never met with one woman so ready to do justice to the charms of another as yourself, responded Lucien, raising his lorgnette to his eye. A most lovely creature upon my soul was his verdict. "'Who is this young person, Monsieur de Morcerf?' inquired Eugénie. "'Does anybody know?' "'Mademoiselle,' said Albert, replying to this direct appeal, "'I can give you very exact information on that subject, as well on most points relative to the mysterious person of whom we are now conversing. The young woman is a Greek.' "'So I should suppose by her dress.' "'If you know no more than that, everyone here is as well formed as yourself.' "'I am extremely sorry you find me so ignorant a Cicerone,' replied Morcerf. "'But I am reluctantly obliged to confess. I have nothing further to communicate. "'Yes, stay. I do know one thing more, namely, that she is a musician. "'For one day, when I chanced to be breakfasting with the Count,' I heard the sound of a guzla. It is impossible that it could have been touched by any other finger than her own. Then your count entertains visitors, does he? asked Madame Danglars. Indeed he does, and in a most lavish manner, I can assure you. I must try and persuade Monsieur Danglars to invite him to a ball or dinner, or something of the sort that he may be compelled to ask us in return. 
"'What?' said Debray, laughing. "'Do you really mean you would go to his house?' "'Why not? My husband could accompany me.' "'But do you know this mysterious count is a bachelor?' "'You have ample proof to the contrary, if you look opposite,' said the baroness, as she laughingly pointed to the beautiful Greek. "'No, no!' exclaimed Debray. "'That girl is not his wife. He told us himself she was his slave. Do you not recollect, Morcerf, his telling us so at your breakfast?' "'Well, then,' said the baroness, "'if slave she be, she has all the air and manner of a princess.' of the arabian nights if you like but tell me my dear lucien what it is that constitutes a princess why diamonds and she is covered with them to me she seems overloaded observed eugenie she would look far better if she wore fewer and we should then be able to see her finely formed throat and wrists see how the artist peeps out exclaimed madame Danglars. "'My poor Eugenie, you must conceal your passion for the fine arts.' "'I admire all that is beautiful,' returned the young lady. "'What did you think of the Count?' inquired Debray. "'He is not much amiss, according to my ideas of good looks.' "'The Count,' repeated Eugenie, as though it had not occurred to her to observe him sooner. "'The Count! Oh, he is so dreadfully pale!' "'I quite agree with you,' said Morcerf. "'And the secret of that very pallor is what we want to find out. "'The Countess G. insists upon it that he is a vampire.' "'Then the Countess G. has returned to Paris, has she?' inquired the Baroness. "'Is that she, Mama? asked Eugenie. "'Almost opposite to us, with that profusion of beautiful light hair?' "'Yes,' said Madame Danglars. "'That is she.' "'Shall I tell you what you ought to do, Morcerf?' "'Command me, madame.' "'Well, then, you should go and bring your Count of Monte Cristo to us.' "'What for?' asked Eugenie. "'What for? Why, to converse with him, of course. "'Have you really no desire to meet him?' "'None whatever,' replied Eugenie. "'Strange child,' murmured the baroness. "'He will very probably come of his own accord,' said Morcerf.' "'There, do you see, madame? He recognizes you, and bows.' The baroness returned the salute, in the most smiling and graceful manner. "'Well,' said Morcerf, "'I may as well be magnanimous, and tear myself away to forward your wishes. Adieu. I will go and try if there are any means of speaking to him. Go straight to his box. That will be the simplest plan.' "'But I have never been presented.' "'Presented to whom?' "'To the beautiful Greek. "'You say she is only a slave. "'While you assert that she is a queen, or at least a princess. "'No, I hope that when he sees me leave you, he will come out. "'That is possible. "'Go.' "'I am going,' said Albert, as he made his parting bow. "'Just as he was passing the Count's box, the door opened, "'and Monte Cristo came forth.' after giving some directions to ali who stood in the lobby the count took albert's arm carefully closing the box door ali placed himself before it while a crowd of spectators assembled around the nubian upon my word said monte cristo paris is a strange city 
and the Parisians are a very singular people. See that cluster of persons collected around poor Ali, who is as much astonished as themselves. Really, one might suppose he was the only Nubian they have ever beheld. Now I can promise you that a Frenchman might show himself in public, either in Tunis, Constantinople, Baghdad, or Cairo, without being treated in that way. That shows that the Eastern nations have too much good sense to waste their time and attention on objects undeserving of either. However, as far as Ali is concerned, I can assure you, the interest he excites is merely from the circumstance of his being your attendant. You, who are at this moment the most celebrated and fashionable person in Paris. Really? And what has procured me so fluttering a distinction? What? Why, yourself, to be sure. You give away horses worth a thousand louis. You save the lives of ladies of high rank and beauty. Under the name of Major Brack, you run thoroughbreds ridden by tiny urchins not larger than marmot. Then, when you have carried off the golden trophy of victory, instead of setting any value on it, you give it to the first handsome woman you think of. And who has filled your head with all this nonsense? Why, in the first place, I heard it from Madame Danglars, who, by the by, is dying to see you in her box. Or, to have you seen there by others. Secondly, I learned it from Beauchamp's journal, and thirdly, from my own imagination. Why, if you sought concealment, did you call your horse Vampa? That was an oversight, certainly, replied the Count. But tell me, does the Count of Morcerf never visit the opera? I have been looking for him, but without success. He will be here to-night. In what part of the house? In the Baroness's box, I believe. That charming young woman with her, is that her daughter? Yes. I congratulate you. Morcerf smiled. "'We will discuss that subject at length some future time,' said he. "'But what do you think of the music?' "'What music?' "'Why, the music you have been listening to.' "'Oh, it is well enough as the production of a human composer, "'sung by featherless bipeds, to quote the late Diogenes. "'From which it would seem, my dear Count,' that you can at pleasure enjoy the seraphic strains that proceed from the seven choirs of paradise. You are right in some degree, when I wish to listen to sounds more exquisitely attuned to melody than mortal ear ever yet listened to. I go to sleep. Then sleep here, my dear Count. The conditions are favourable. What else was opera invented for? No, thank you. Your orchestra is too noisy. To sleep after the manner I speak of, absolute calm and silence are necessary, and then a certain preparation. I know, the famous Ashish. Precisely. So, my dear Viscount, whenever you wish to be regaled with music, come and sup with me. I have already enjoyed that treat when breakfasting with you, said Morcerf. Do you mean at Rome? I do. "'Ah, then, I suppose you heard Hades Goozler, 
the poor exile frequently beguiles a weary hour in playing over to me the airs of her native land. Morcerf did not pursue the subject, and Monte Cristo himself fell into a silent reverie. The bell rang at this moment for the rising of the curtain. "'You will excuse me leaving you,' said the Count, turning in the direction of his box. "'What? Are you going?' "'Pray say everything that is kind to Countess G, on the part of her friend, the vampire.' "'And what message shall I convey to the baroness?' "'That with her permission I shall do myself the honour of paying my respects in the course of the evening.' The third act had begun, and during its progress the Count of Morcerf, according to his promise, made his appearance in the box of Madame Donglar. The Count of Morcerf was not a person to excite either interest or curiosity in a place of public amusement. His presence, therefore, was wholly unnoticed, save by the occupants of the box in which he had just seated himself. The quick eye of Monte Cristo, however, marked his coming, and a slight though meaningful smile passed over his lips. Haiti, whose soul seemed centred in the business of the stage, like all unsophisticated natures, delighted in whatever addressed itself to the eye or ear. The third act passed off as usual. Mesdemoiselles Noblet, Joulet, and Leroux executed the customary pirouette. Robert duly challenged the Prince of Granada, and the royal father of the Princess Isabella, taking his daughter by the hand, swept round the stage with majestic strides, the better to display the rich folds of his velvet robe and mantle. After which the curtain again fell, and the spectators poured forth from the theatre into the lobbies and salon. The Count left his box, and a moment later was saluting the Baron d'Anglars, who could not restrain a cry of mingled pleasure and surprise. "'You are welcome, Count!' she exclaimed as he entered. "'I have been most anxious to see you, that I might repeat orally the thanks writing can so ill express. Surely so trifling a circumstance cannot deserve a place in your remembrance. Believe me, madam, I had entirely forgotten it. But it is not so easy to forget, monsieur, that the very next day after your princely gift you saved the life of my dear friend madame de villefort which was endangered by the very animals your generosity restored to me this time at least i do not deserve your thanks it was ali my nubian slave who rendered this service to madame de villefort was it ali asked the count of morcerf who rescued my son from the hands of bandits "'No, Count,' replied Monte Cristo, taking the hand held out to him by the general. "'In this instance I may fairly and freely accept your thanks. But you have already tendered them and fully discharged your debt, if indeed there existed one, and I feel almost mortified to find you still reverting to the subject. May I beg of you, Baroness, to honour me with an introduction to your daughter?' "'Oh!' "'You are no stranger, at least not by name,' replied Madame Donglar. "'And the last two or three days we have really talked of nothing but you. "'Eugénie,' continued the baroness, turning towards her daughter, "'this is the Count of Monte Cristo.' "'The Count bowed, while Mademoiselle Donglar bent her head slightly 
"'You have a charming young person with you to-night, Count,' said Eugenie. "'Is she your daughter?' "'No, mademoiselle,' said Monte Cristo, astonished at the coolness and freedom of the question. "'She is a poor, unfortunate Greek, left under my care.' "'And what is her name?' "'Hady,' replied Monte Cristo. "'A Greek?' murmured the Count of Morcerf. "'Yes, indeed, Count,' said Madame Danglars. "'And tell me, did you ever see at the court of Ali Tepelini, whom you so gloriously and valiantly served, a more exquisite beauty or richer costume?' "'Did I hear rightly, monsieur?' said Monte Cristo. "'That you served at Yanina?' "'I was inspector-general of the Pasha's troops,' replied Morcerf. "'And it is no secret that I owe my fortune, such as it is, to the liberality of the illustrious Albanese chief.' "'But look!' exclaimed Madame Danglars. "'Where?' stammered Morcerf. "'There,' said Monte Cristo, placing his arms around the Count and leaning with him over the front of the box, just as Hady, whose eyes were occupied in examining the theatre in search of her guardian, perceived his pale features close to Morcerf's face. It was as if the young girl beheld the head of Medusa. She bent forwards as though to assure herself of the reality of what she saw, then, uttering a faint cry, threw herself back in her seat. The sound was heard by the people about Ali, who instantly opened the box-door. "'Why, Count!' exclaimed Eugenie. "'What has happened to your ward? She seems to have been taken suddenly ill.' "'Very probably,' answered the Count. "'But do not be alarmed on her account. Hades' nervous system is delicately organized, and she is peculiarly susceptible to the odors even of flowers. Nay, there are some which cause her to faint if brought into her presence. However,' continued Monte Cristo, drawing a small phial from his pocket, "'I have an infallible remedy.' So saying, he bowed to the baroness and her daughter, exchanged a parting shake of the hand with Debray and the Count, and left Madame Danglars's box. Upon his return to Haiti, he found her still very pale, as soon as she saw him she seized his hand. Her own hands were moist and icy cold. "'Who was it you were talking with over there?' she asked. "'With the Count of Morcerf,' answered Monte Cristo. "'He tells me he served your illustrious father, and that he owes his fortune to him.' "'Wretch!' exclaimed Hady, her eyes flashing with rage. He sold my father to the Turks, and the fortune he boasts of was the price of his treachery. Did you not know that, my dear lord? Something of this I heard in Epirus, said Monte Cristo, but the particulars are still unknown to me. You shall relate them to me, my child. They are, no doubt, both curious and interesting. Yes, yes, but let us go. I feel as though it would kill me to remain long near that dreadful man. So saying, Hady arose, and wrapping herself in her banous of white cashmere, embroidered with pearls and coral, she hastily quitted the box at the moment when the curtain was rising upon the fourth act. "'Do you observe,' said the Countess G., to Albert, who had returned to her side, "'that man does nothing like other people.' He listens most devoutly to the third act of Robert le Diable, and when the fourth begins, 
takes his departure. End of chapter 53. All right, I promised you another special guest. Here I have our craftlet master of the five-act structure, Aaron Ziegler, from the Chop Bard podcast, to whom I posed this question. Why does the Countess G make this crack about the Crown of Monte Cristo, paying so much attention to the third act and leaving as soon as the fourth started? This is what Aaron had to say. From a structure point of view, if act three is the climax, then the play has achieved the highest amount of suspense that it can. Act four will only bring the falling action and five the resolution. So maybe the man in question doesn't like the wrapping up period and is only interested in the adventure, the building but not the meaning or resolve. Or specifically, he doesn't like the thought of Robert deciding to give up magic. Like in The Tempest, if we stop the play after Act 3, Prospero gets to keep his magic. Or he just wanted to catch his ride early to avoid the exit crowds. So, Eugenie, Danglar, girl's got a lot of money. Doesn't seem to be overly interested in uh, Albert, who she's supposed to marry. Doesn't seem to be all that interested in any other guys, actually. And Albert doesn't seem to be all that interested in her. Not necessarily because he's not interested in her, but because he seems to be picking up on the fact that she's not very interested in him, either. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to make a guess. And you can call in and let me know if this is true. I am going to guess that if you read the truncated version of this story when you were a child in school, that chances are... This character was either expunged from the record or not entirely drawn with a, a great amount of detail left because her relationship with the other characters in the story and her relationship with the, the other woman who you haven't met yet, the girl that she knew, the musician, the one who can really sing, Eugenie's relationship with them isn't necessarily crucial to the turning of the plot, but it is nonetheless, I think, an extraordinary move on Dumas' part. And also, I think, perhaps our first real indication that we are not reading a book that began its life in England. Now, this seems to me to be a very French book. Because not only is this a relatively main character, I mean, it's Danglar's daughter, but it also seems to be a moment where someone's preference in who they want to love matters not at all. And we, we know from so many movies and dramas and, and other novels from the late 17th and into the 1800s, we know that love and courtship and the royal court dealt with all of these relationships between men and women on a slightly freer basis than we saw in books that were written in England at the time, at the same time. And I think this character really proves that difference. So, vive la France, <laughs> And I think that's it. Oh, no, uh, I did want to say Potemkin, like Potemkin. He keeps his pockets filled for the sake of stirring them along the road. This is because Ide was wearing a bunch of diamonds and Albert and his friends were talking. And the comment was the Count of Monte Cristo sure seems to like his diamonds. 
And Morserf says, he seems to have a mania for diamonds, and I variably believe that, like Potemkin, he keeps his pockets filled for the sake of strewing them along the road. Potemkin was a lover of Catherine the Great. He had moved up from kind of a middle-class family up into a position of some amount of power once Catherine's eye had been cast happily upon him. And he really, really, really liked rich things like diamonds. And I'm sure if he could have lined his pockets with diamonds, he would have been more than happy to. But I'm linking back to a page on him. I'm still looking for information on the Tom Thumb thing. So if you know how that referred to Tom Thumb and Flint, I was reading as many Tom Thumb stories as I could find from England, but I did not get anything on this. If you do find anything, feel free to call in at 206-350-1642. You can leave questions, you can leave comments, you can leave answers to the Tom Thumb question, and anything else. Oh, and if you have any questions at all about the First Amendment, we are doing an accidental series on the First Amendment over on the Weekly Constitutional, which you can find at the Craftlit YouTube channel, youtube.com slash craftlet hyphen channel and that's it hope you have a great week i'll talk to you soon bye if you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet there are rewards waiting for you beyond you know the free podcast you can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 